think the very first thing that, that comes to mind for organisations looking to engage with the new New South Wales government is that they have been in opposition for a long time and they do have a pipeline of pet projects they'd like to bring to the fore. Those are going to be costed uh, in the budget that comes out in June and it'll be really difficult to um, shape that budget away from the pre-election commitments. And so what are we looking to do as a first step is have a review of my organisation's approach, what our goals are, and see where we could strategically align those with the way that the budget is going to fall and the projects that the new Labor government are going to push forward. On March 25th, New South Wales voters faced a choice between reinstating the incumbent coalition government, promising to keep their state moving forward for a fourth term, or commencing a fresh start with a new-look Labor team eager to end their 12-year stint on opposition benches. An election that was predicted to be the tightest in over a decade was instead called a Labor victory just hours after polls had closed, registering another resounding defeat for the Liberal National Coalition. While no teal wave or green slide eventuated, the result in New South Wales reflects the trend seen federally, with Minza's Labor to form a minority government with the extended crossbench, and in turn, for the first time in 15 years, Labor will hold power in all states and territories on mainland Australia. Today on Michaelson Alexander Explains, I'm joined by Associate Jeremy Philip Yelland and Communications Specialist Matilda Finn to analyse what this state election result means for New South Wales and Australia. We'll also explore what we expect the next four years under Premier Minns will look like and how your organisation can capitalise on fresh opportunities that a new government brings. So today we're going to break down the podcast into two parts. Uh, what this election result means for all of Australia and what it means specifically for organisations and people in New South Wales. And we'll start with the macro first. And so what does this mean for Australia? And, you know, the term red nation has been declared for the uh, mainland of Australia, but is this just a matter of cycle? Obviously, it's been 15 years since Labor has governed in all states and territories of mainland Australia. Is this just the nature of the beast or is there something else at play for each of the two major parties that being Liberal and Labor? Uh, I think both, Gordo. So I think we've had, uh, we've seen a bit of a movement um, of rejuvenation throughout the Australian Labor Party. Um, there were some tricky years for the party, especially in uh, the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years um, in, that's across the country and focusing in on New South Wales. There was a lot of trouble towards the end of 2010-11 and the last Labor government. And I think there was a significant tarnishing of the Labor brand so much so in New South Wales that many of the Labor MPs contesting the next federal election actually changed their colours. They weren't wearing red uh, when they had their campaign shirts. They weren't the traditional red and white. Some of them moved to purple. Some of them moved to orange. Um, some of them moved to yellow. Um, and so we see now that people are kind of bringing back the red shirts. They're more proudly wearing um, their Labor colours. And I think that's, you know due to a couple of things, a long time in exile, um, some cleaning out of the old ways, um, but also, um, as it's famously said, oppositions don't usually win elections, governments lose them. So we had long-term incumbents uh, in the coalition in New South Wales and across the country, and lots of things set in that kind of, um, you know, put the public off the Liberal brand. Um, so slowly we've seen them weeded out across mainland Australia, and the last sort of mainland state to hold on is was New South Wales. Um, but over the last three or four years, we've seen a fair bit of corruption and controversy in that coalition government. So I think it's um, we see a, a rejuvenated Labor um, in office across the mainland states, and we see um, a Liberal National Coalition now needing to take sort of a look at themselves and, and clean up their act in order to pitch 
for the next round of elections. And so Tilly, from your research, how has it, the Liberal Party gone about approaching this both since the, the federal election loss, but also since New South Wales lost as well? New South Wales has been a Liberal stronghold now for 12 years, which is a significant amount of time to have one uh, party in government. And I think this is now showing that they're the final state on the mainland to fall to Labor. And I think we're now seeing a Liberal Party that, frankly, what we saw at the 2022 election is not changing. We're seeing a party that is very out of touch with the majority of electorates across Australia and doesn't seem to want to change their policies in order to get back in government, which because they're now in exile. Um, there was a fantastic uh, opinion piece in The Age over the weekend which made the comment that the fact that Tasmania is now the only kind of Liberal state shows that they're really a party in exile. And... Peter Dutton is now making the Liberals the natural party of opposition. I think a lot of people aren't super happy with the way he's taking the way, the direction he's taking the party. And I should say that this is not, this doesn't feel like a temporary change in Australian politics. This feels like a real environmental shift. We're seeing a very different sort of structure in the way people are looking at things. People have very different concerns that used to be sort of the back of our mind. We used to think about climate change as a really far off thing to worry about. A lot of minor issues, whether it was in social welfare or, or areas like that, it's now sort of come to the forefront of politicians and politicians are kind of going, well, unless you take that stance, a lot of people are not going to vote you in. Um, and so if you look at something like climate change, like Australians for now over a decade have watched the rest of the world in absolute envy and gone, why are we not doing this? Why are we not advancing renewable energy projects? Why are we not slashing our emissions? Um, why are we not making really pivotal, vital steps towards something that is incredibly urgent? And Australians got really fed up with that. And who is the predominant age group that is really concerned about climate change? It's Australians under the age of 35. Um, and they're ones that they want a future to build towards and they don't want to have the decision to have children taken away from them, um, speaking personally as well. Um, but the 20, I think this is really interesting. So the 2022 Australian election study, which looked at which studied Australia's federal election last year, found only one in four voters under the age of 40 actually voted for the coalition. And this is massive. So in this study's 35-year history, they've never recorded such a low level of support for either major party among such a large proportion of the electorate. And you are not going to win an election, whether it's state or federal, without having that electorate on your side. There is no way that's going to happen. Um, And in the last quarterly essay, co-author Professor Simon Jackman said... The coalition's vote share has now fallen to parlous levels, not only among younger women and younger professionals, but right across the two youngest generations in Australia, millennials and Gen Z. And so I think we're now saying that they need to really dramatically rethink their policies. Whether they actually will do that, I think is another question in itself. And we saw the Liberals have decided not to formally uh, support The Voice and instead want to come out with a different approach. And um, to be really interesting to see what that different approach actually looks like and whether they're going to make steps towards more progressive, all-encompassing policies that Australians will want to vote for again in the future. It's interesting that you use the phrase, the natural party of opposition. When I moved from Queensland, New South Wales started to work in Labor circles. A couple of people told me that Labor was the natural party of government. That would have been in 2016, 17. Uh, and then we lost an election in 2019 there. And... Um, and that obviously wasn't true. And I think there's a lot of danger around uh, assuming that you're the natural party of government. It's fascinating to hear someone say the natural party of opposition. Um, that's probably the case for the time. The uh, Liberal Party um, and the National Party have, have disappeared a little bit in terms of their relevance to contemporary Australians and, and how um, their voting patterns have changed. 
So in, in New South Wales, broadly speaking, um, it's a conservative state, both in the way they approach their policy, but also with their appetite to change. So we find that most governments in New South Wales are there for, on average, a minimum of three terms. Some of them are there for four terms. Whether that would be the case with bins, I'm not sure. There's been you know big change to the voting pattern, so that might not be the case. But certainly the former coalition government was there for 12 years. Uh, really, the Labor government before that was in for at least 12 or 16. Uh, there were then long periods of coalition government and Labor before that. And it's a, a cycle of 12 or 16 years. And I think that speaks to um, the reluctance to change from the New South Wales uh, electorate. But to that broader point about the Liberal Party and their relevance to Australians, I think, uh, although I, I don't agree with many of the things that he did, John Howard was a very talented politician. What he was able to do was he was able to convince what were referred to as the Howard battlers, people who would traditionally vote for the working class party, to change their vote and vote for the Liberal Party. And he kind of rebranded the Liberals a little bit away from being sort of, you know, your upper class elite group to those that are socially aspirational, those that want to climb the ladder. And traditionally, you know, Labour is a party that brings people up from their bootstraps. Howard was able to flip that narrative and bring a lot of those sort of voters in out of metropolitan seats, mainly the Nationals and, of course, bringing a lot of regional seats. That's how he was able to hold the power for so long because he had uh, brought those people along on that journey that the Liberal Party was the aspirational party. So then we saw a, a move back when climate change came to the fore. There was probably too many, too many mistakes made in that Rudd, Gillard, Rudd uh, period, although we saw them reflected again in the uh, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison period and the mistakes of um, your internal machinations playing out uh, to the public. But I think what has happened is that um, a lot of those Howard battlers have changed their perspectives. Also, a lot of them have... Um, realised that the way they moved forward was through um, what was key at the time, what, what was driving industry, what was driving, driving policy at the time. And now we know that you know a lot of that is in the tech space, a lot of that is in the renewable energy space. It's about making social progress where we can. And so that's where the Australian electorate is, but that's not where the Liberal Party is. And it seems like, um, although they're a fairly well-oiled machine in New South Wales, Liberal and National Parties, they work fairly well compared to other iterations across the country. It seems like they weren't able to convince the electorate that they were the party to bring things forward. Um, and I think Mins, from the very start, had a fresh approach to New South Wales. I think he was helped by the success of the Federal Labor Party and by the fact that the Prime Minister you know, is, is from New South Wales and spent a lot of time there. And the people of New South Wales probably saw the progress that's going to be able to roll out over the next few years with a Labor state and Labor federal government. Mm. I just want to touch on the, the point there about you know natural sides of government. Mm. And so... You mentioned there the danger of a party believing they are, you know, either naturally in opposition or naturally in government. But also, what does it mean for people in terms of their government relations? So, if an organisation is approaching this in New South Wales, in this circumstance, and you say like history suggests going to be a twelve-year period of conservative election cycles, is that how you would approach government relations for this term and going forward, or should you approach it with the caution that you should never presume that any one party? will be the, the natural government party for a longer period of time than just one election cycle? Great question, Gordo. I think the very first thing that uh, comes to mind is for organisations looking to engage with the new New South Wales government is that they have been in opposition for a long time and they do have a pipeline of pet projects they'd like to bring to the fore. Those are going to be costed uh, in the budget that comes out in June and it'll be really difficult to um, shape that budget away from uh, the pre-election commitments. 
And so what I would be looking to do as a first step is have a review of my organization's approach, what our goals are, and see where we could strategically align those with the way that the budget is going to fall and the projects that the new Labor government are going to push forward. And if your organization's in a position to support the government in achieving its commitments, that's going to be great in terms of your stickiness with the government moving forward. So difficult to shape policy in the first year and difficult to shape budget allocations, but if you can position yourself as a trusted advisor to government and importantly, someone that has the ability to get things done, bring stakeholders to the table and make sure that the projects the government have in mind are rolled out and rolled out in an expedited manner, then you're going to be you know, the person they turn to next when it comes to policy in your chosen area. And so to broaden it back out between comparisons between this election result and the federal election result, we saw another fragmented um, electorate um, voting results in the sense of, I think it's now eight ind independents at the time of recording uh, being in the, the lower house. Does this reflect the greater trend we're seeing amongst voters shifting away from parties and towards independence, whether they be teals or straight independents? Or are we seeing a, a reverting back to Labor in general, as opposed to you know, the continued fragmentation we've seen probably since 2017? I think the fragmentation is here to stay. I think the trends that we saw at the 2022 federal election, I think are going to continue and if anything grow. I think the minor parties and the independents, particularly the Teals last year, very cleverly were catering to young people. They were catering to that sort of catchment of voters I was talking about earlier. And they seemed to, or they appeared to genuinely listen to their concerns, whether it was things like climate change, cost of living, the rental market crisis, housing crisis, social welfare, homelessness. I mean, unfortunately, the list is quite endless at the moment in that kind of post-COVID environment. And I think if that persists and they continue to genuinely appear to listen to that catchment of voters, they, I think their presence is going to grow, particularly with the independents who now, I think it was eight independents, you said, in the lower house. Um, I think another sort of follow-up question to that, though, is is fragmentation going to be dangerous, though? If the spread of the vote is going to be so vast and there's so many different areas, are the election results going to be so fine that we're not quite sure what the public actually is leaning towards or what are the main issues that they're worried about if the fragmentation is so vast? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think uh, there is an independent movement. I think, uh, you know, you might go back to Helen Haynes in Indi. She... Uh, won a tough election and she was a wonderful local member and on the national stage people were able to see that independents could get things done and they could uh, partner with government. There was also um, the Gillard government even before that was supported by independents uh, and they were able to move a lot of legislation through. I think that was a record government in terms of how much legislation went, actually went through the House um, and for those electorates that were uh, supported by independents, they had um, a stronger hand uh, at the decision table than they would have Otherwise, if they were represented by either a member of the government or a member of the opposition, because the independence vote was tied to the passage of that legislation. Uh, in New South Wales, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Labor government interact with the eight independents and how they format themselves. Will that be a voting block that's put together? So three of the independents from regional New South Wales are former Shooter Fisher Farmer Party members. Um, that party has done a lot of blowing itself up and undoing the thread uh, in the last sort of year or so. And so we now have three independents that have done a great job serving their communities um, who are now less hamstrung by any party line when it comes to legislation. And it'll be really interesting to see the role that they play um, and the focus that gets given to regional New South Wales. 
The flow-on effect of that is that those members have uh, won seats at the last election in 2019 off national party MPs. And these are, you know, previously the safest national seats there are in far west New South Wales. You know, we're talking about seats like Barwon, which is about the size of Germany. And Roy Butler, who's named the local member, he uh, has worked brilliantly, has the respect of all key stakeholders of the previous government, the coalition, and of incoming government. So um, it'll be complex to win that seat back for the nationals. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether that independent flow stretches across across um, far west and New South Wales. The other interesting thing is to see how much legislation is actually brought to the table by independents. So we saw in the last parliament, Alex Greenwich led on a number of pieces of socially progressive legislation. And these are you know, capstone pieces of legislation for New South Wales. So one of them was um, decriminalising uh, voluntary assisted dying. So making sure that people who are terminally ill um, have access to euthanasia if that's their wish. Uh, and also decriminalising abortion in New South Wales. So seminal pieces of legislation brought to the table by the independent member for Sydney and government and opposition um, on the whole supported the passage of those two pieces of legislation. Uh, but I don't think uh, Alex's appetite will have dropped off. Um, I think he'll be looking at progressive legislation again. He might weigh into um, the piece on uh, gambling reform in New South Wales um, or a myriad of other issues. And I wonder how buoyed the other independents will be by the success that Alex had in the previous government. To go back to a more macro level, um, whilst this campaign was you know, widely heralded as you know, the friendly campaign between two like-minded uh, politicians and political leaders, um, it was being criticised in the media for being a campaign of small ideas and things like you know, tolls for, for roads was a, a major playing point. And obviously at a more federal level, it's all about you know, the financial pinch everyone's feeling at, the, um, you know, at this rate rise crisis. Has this election allocated, indicated anything to us about either polit politics or people's um, appetite for bigger idea thinking? I think the bigger ideas are harder to deliver on. And I think politicians and the voters are catching on to that. And I think with this New South Wales election, for example, take the, uh, the cap on tolls. So the $60 a week cap on Sydney motorists. If you are an, a New South Wales voter and you know that you're going to Sydney a lot and that's going to save you a lot of money, that's an instant win for you. And you can go, that is going to impact my weekly life. I'm here for that. If they come out and say massive claims about we're going to fix all the housing crisis in one year, people aren't going to believe you. So I think we need to give Australian voters a lot more credit now. The way that we consume information is a lot different, very different, sorry. Um, things like social media are informing people if they see big announcements being made. There's now organisations on social media that will debunk what a politician has said or dive through what it actually means and what policies are actually required to get to that next level. So I think we need to give voters a lot more credit and politicians are maybe catching on to that and saying that maybe the smaller ideas are better. Um, I think another example was Albanese last year talking about aged care. I think he really catch, caught on to a very particular area of Australia where a lot of people are very dissatisfied with the way it's run. Um, I'm not saying aged care is a small issue at all. It's well, obviously it was massive. And getting, um, and getting bigger over the next Yeah, and getting decade. bigger. Um, but I think it was quite clever for Albanese to kind of get ahead of that and tap into something that affects a relatively minute amount of the population, but a lot of people at the same time. Um, so I don't think it's the end of big ideas. I think it's just it's less realistic if you make a big outlandish claim that you can do something. If you can deliver it within four years of government, 
that's another question as well. Yeah, that's a great point. The tolls thing is interesting. It's it's yeah a issue of minutiae. It's a small issue, but it also speaks to larger issues, especially in the seats that Labor had to target in order to win, mainly across the belt of Western um, Western Sydney. Uh, so some of the tolls in Sydney are seven dollars eighty, eight dollars twenty per trip, uh, and a lot of uh, the users of these toll roads are moving around for work during the day. And so you might incur five, six, seven tolls per day. And so you may actually be at that $60 mark on Monday by the end of the day, or it could be midday on Tuesday. So that is a significant thing to have what is essentially from Tuesday afternoon through to the weekend, uh, when the, you know, the week resets on Sunday night or whatever it is, uh, as being toll free. So it's a significant thing in terms of uh, the take-home income for people who are using those tolls a lot. The previous government invested a lot, uh, a lot of money in uh, toll roads in public-private partnerships and not a lot in public transport. And so that actually pushed people to use these tunnels. And but don't get me wrong, some of them are fantastic and they're really quick and they get you out of the gridlock. But another way of investing to get out of that gridlock is to take people off the road uh, and put them uh, into trains or onto ferries or... Uh, light rails if you need to um, or buses that you can power either by you know green hydrogen or via electricity so there are other solutions outside of tolls but until you know we, we get the decades to put those into place um, then capping that um, expenditure is really important and it also not only speaks to the seats that are most affected and, and that were going to be strategically important in order to win government but it also speaks to the way that Labor is looking to govern and the policies that it's looking to roll out over its stint in government. So I agree with you, Tilly, that big commitments um, are, are probably out the door because they're hard to deliver on, mainly because you can't predict what happens in the future. So it was really hard to predict that we'd have this little pandemic over the last few years, and that threw a couple of spanners in the works uh, as to how much money state and federal governments had to spend on their major projects. Um, financial crises do the same, uh, droughts will do the same, floods will do the same, we tend to have a couple of those in Australia over a term of government. And so it is actually hard to commit properly to a project and then fund it within the parameters um, that you'd set pre-election. But what Min's has done successfully is he's put big vision out there without necessarily committing to something that he's going to deliver. So a large narrative was been, has been about, in the election campaign, has been about making things in New South Wales. Min's is talking about advanced manufacturing. He's talking about investing in jobs in New South Wales and in skills and training and education, but he's doing it in a way that doesn't put a cost next to it and he can bring people along with the idea of making things here. The government, uh, the previous government have been helpful in a few blunders in things that they've bought from overseas, uh, trains and light rails that didn't fit the tracks. Uh, there was a case of some ferries that go up the Parramatta River that were a little bit too high and at high tide if you were on the top deck uh, you're at risk of being decapitated as you go under a bridge. So a couple of these big gaffes uh, were helpful in terms of the campaigning material the Labor Party had, but also the idea of bringing things back to New South Wales, investing in people in our state, is something that you can commit to and bring people, the public, along with the journey, but you don't have to say, by the way, it's going to cost us $72 billion across three years. Just going back to what you said about, like, it's had a huge drought season and flooding season in New South Wales. I was quite taken back that there wasn't more climate talk in the lead up to the election. I mean, there was talk about returning the state kind of electricity corporation, same as um, in Victoria. 
and it's all, but it's all going to be very heavily dependent on private relationships and the private sector delivering all of that. I was quite surprised that there wasn't more talk about climate policies, considering that the northern rivers were completely taken out by flooding, completely upheaved so many people's lives, and it just seemed that the policy was very kind of was like corridored into like certain avenues and we didn't get like you said big statements about climate I was really like quite surprised by that I don't know about you. yeah yeah and it's it's interesting that it's climate's an issue that's not going to go away rightfully so uh, but it potentially wasn't an issue that the state either uh, party of state government thought that they were going to be able to solve and so it was left to the side um, and interesting at the start we were talking about an election between two people that at least on the surface level seem quite similar in terms of uh, former Premier Perite and now Premier Mins, uh, in that they're both um, relatively tall uh, men in their, maybe Perite's 39 or 40, Mins must be between 40 and 45. So they're similar people, they both grew up in Sydney. They actually, interestingly enough, have both have a religious background. Um, and so we have similar people running um, for Premier. And so what that kind of did is take out the personality that we've seen dominate so many elections previously. Um, I think if we look back to the previous election, um, Premier Berejik Lane was so popular. She became even more popular after that election through the way that she managed uh, the COVID crisis in New South Wales. That had Berejik Lane still been the Premier incumbent at the election, it would have been very different result, I suspect. Somehow she captured the uh, hearts of the public. Uh, she had a well-publicised uh, affair with the member for Wagga Wagga, but that actually endeared her further to the public um, as, and young people that started to refer to her as hot mess Gladys. So that kind of brought on another subsection of vote. Anyway, I digress, but I think that the similarity between the two leaders made the uh, conversation in uh, the election campaign a bit more interesting because it allowed the voters to look a bit deeper at policy. And so you mentioned there that, you know, the similarity in personality allowed for the, you know, exploration of policy discussion. But one of the key differences was around um, catch their catchless pokies policy where the Liberal government was going to make a commitment to a rollout, you know, that policy straight away, whereas Labor is now in the middle of um, a 500 machine um, trial. Does this suggest... And on the back of Tilly's mention about, you know, small small goals, I suppose, so big ideas but small goals, is that going to be the theme for this Labor government in New South Wales when it comes to social impact policies? Is there an appetite to take big swings and take some um, publicity risks for things that matter, like, like pokies, like drug reform, like, yeah, legal reform and things like that? Labor people always hope that there's going to be this dynamic suite of policies that will change the state of the country dynamically uh, and very quickly. Whether that is the best way to play government from a Labor point of view in New South Wales, I'm not so sure. And potentially uh, the way that Minns has approached um, his work as a leader of the opposition and, and how he started his work as the Premier is uh, incremental gains in these spaces and really committing to the few things that he and the party have decided are in the wheelhouse. So solving the crisis in the healthcare system, um, making sure we have enough teachers and we're improving the state of education in New South Wales, uh, looking at making things in the state and investing in skills and training and keeping uh, staff in New South Wales. Um, as a side part, lots of teachers are leaving the profession, lots of nurses are leaving the profession, a lot of them um, 
are also leaving New South Wales and getting jobs elsewhere because they get better pay and conditions in Queensland and Victoria. Um, so I think the first cab off the rank will be solving those problems. Um, and then as a, as a second approach, I think that's when the social issues may come to the fore. So I think Mins is taking a, a practical approach and then he'll take a more philosophical approach um, in the future. Uh, and there are people that might push that agenda. So we have you know some very progressive independents that might pick up an issue and it could be um, gambling reform and specifically pokies and run with it. And that might push the government to uh, take action more quickly. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of, that'll be interesting to see play out over the next year as uh, the normal sort of rhythm of government settles in and we see which players are sort of willing to push the government forward uh, on social reform. And Minz has also already been kind of questioned around, particularly the nursing shortage. He's still stopping short of doing a proper, you know, nursing ratio. He's only agreed to hire, I think a lead up to election, he said about 12,000, 1,200 more professionals into the system. When it comes to teachers, it wasn't, it was like giving temporary teachers 10,000 job, permanent jobs and things like that. But there's still not, from a lot of people and from the nursing associations are saying, this is not enough. And that's, like you said, they're losing people to Victoria, Queensland, wherever it is. They're choosing to leave because the 12 year freeze on conditions and wages has just been far too long. And sometimes you can't wait for a Labor government or a new government to come in and fix the problem when you've got a cost of living crisis and a housing crisis. You need the money to, to live. Yeah. What else can you do? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, a lot of teachers uh, and a lot of nurses in particular, but also orderlies, uh, catering staff, hospitals, cleaners uh, have to live a long way from work. Uh, and then that sort of ties back into the toll space. So, if you work in, there's three hospitals in uh, Randwick in the eastern suburbs. If you're a, an orderly that works at the Prince Wales Hospital and you need to live in Randwick or Coogee, you're looking at somewhere that's $500, $600 a week to rent uh, and then at, at a baseline. And then, you know, what sort of percentage of your income is that? Ma a massive percentage. So a lot of workers are displaced, living a long way from where they work. Public transport is fantastic and tolls are expensive. So you're right. Those groups of people are in a bind and lots of them um, are leaving. And so it's a big problem to solve. And you're right, Tilly, the um, Teachers Federation and the Nurses and Midwives Association uh, are not satisfied with the steps that the government has taken so far. And so it'll be interesting to see how those negotiations continue. I think Mint has said that the uh, table is open, the discussion table in, and the bargaining table is open uh, to the unions to come and discuss what needs to be done. And, how um, you know the government might start solving some of those problems. In the last term of government, I think there were seven or eight uh, strikes by both of those professions that you know walked down Macquarie Street in front of Parliament House uh, because they were obviously extremely unhappy. They stretched to the brink. COVID made it worse, uh, and now there's a cost of living crisis. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly the government can take action on those things um, because that comes with a bill at the end of it. But it's important that we are supporting you know, what are frontline essential workers to stay in New South Wales and support the population. As you mentioned there, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the previous New South Wales government, despite them being there for, for almost four terms. And part of that is around corruption. But also, if you go back historically, a code word for corruption in New South Wales had also been the Labor government. So do you think that the, there's a social licence already presumed there from the people? Obviously, they won the election, so they've been given the, the right to govern. But do they also have the social licence or the trust from the from the voters and the citizens of New South Wales to do so appropriately. Yeah, trust is hard earned, isn't it? And and can be easily and quickly lost. Uh, so 
uh, ICAC is, a, is often in the news in New South Wales and has been a lot over the last term of government. And you're right, Gordon, it was uh, Labor politicians that spent most of their time there uh, in the early 2010s and also at the start of sort of the 2020s as well, um, to the point where a lot of uh, MPs in fairly safe Labor seats were changing their colours from red when they went out to campaign to orange and purple and white and a few different colours so that they weren't immediately associated with um, the Labor Party. But in the last term of government, we've seen the coalition go down the same way. So uh, we saw um, a lot of uh, corruption that was surrounding the former Deputy Premier, John Barillaro. But the, the, the coalition have run into troubles uh, with corruption in the last few years as well. Uh, and so I think, broadly speaking, voters are sick of uh, politicians uh, helping themselves and not helping the electorate. I think part of that played out in... Um, the teal wave in the federal election. I think we've seen part of it play out with the eight uh, lower house independents as well. Uh, but I think there is the opportunity to borrow uh, Minza's election phrase uh, for a fresh start in New South Wales. I think that's greatly assisted by the way that Anthony Albanese has approached uh, both his time in opposition and now his time as the prime minister and leading the government. It's been a fairly transparent, open approach engaging with the public and he hasn't taken too many false steps. So I think that um, was a good guide, a good yardstick for means to pick up and run with. Um, and so there is the opportunity to sort of win back the public, but it'll take time. Uh, governments will need to be shown to be transparent and supporting uh, the electorate at every opportunity that they get. And so you mentioned there that obviously Albanese has you know, has offered his full support of, of Mins and that's fairly obvious given, you know, being a, a man from New South Wales himself and, you know, entrenched in both Labor at both, you know, state and federal levels. But can that be presumed for cooperation amongst all of the Labor governments that we now see across the mainland? Are they going to play, are the premiers going to play nice with each other and the PM or, you know, does there have to be some, some, some headbutting and some conflict for, you know, for things to work in this country? Everything surely runs easier uh, when people get on. So one would hope that there is an opportunity now, if from a non-partisan perspective, there can be heads butted when we have uh, a federal government of one stripe and a state of another, particularly in states that don't usually change, change hands that often. So if we take uh, Victoria as an example, there were some famous interactions between the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the Premier Daniel Andrews, especially during the uh, COVID crisis that's um, played out over the last few years, where things weren't done effectively or efficiently and there was a lot of uh, name-calling and disagreement. So one would hope that uh, we, when you have two Labor leaders from roughly the same part of Sydney, they, they are demographically different, but geographically they're not too far apart, um, Marrickville and Cogram, that uh, Albanese and Nin see eye-to-eye on Issues. It's also in Albanese's favour for things to go well in New South Wales under Labor governments. Uh, he's going to be up for election, re-election sooner than um, the Minns is, and uh, Western Sydney will be, as it always is, a battleground um, area for the next federal election. So politically, it'll be advantageous if Albanese and Minns get on and, and roll out projects, but of course um, we haven't seen that play out always. And then there's the old interaction between the federal government and states and whose jurisdiction uh, is whose. And it'll be interesting to see if they play out those conversations uh, in a meeting room or whether they play them out through the media. Um, but yeah, one would think, and broadly for the betterment of the country, one would hope 
uh, that everyone gets on. And so then my final question is around uh, how should organisations approach interactions with, with new cabinets? And so obviously this week we've heard the announcement of MIMS government, the New South Wales government, but also, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Albanese's cabinet is still relatively fresh and new at their jobs as well. And so is there anyone that people in New South Wales should keep their eyes on from the cabinet? Because obviously the majority of the cabinet has never been in cabinet before. Um, and then, yes, how would you approach engaging with those new new ministers and, and can we assist them in some way to help in their, their transition? Yeah, we might have to fact check this. I'm pretty sure it's only the Attorney General, Michael Daly, that served as a minister before, which means everyone else, including all but one in the cabinet, is new to the position. Uh, they spent a long time in opposition, so they've probably got plans they'd like to roll out. And a long time in opposition makes you an adept politician. So you develop the skills of understanding what is politically pertinent, how to communicate it to the electorate, how to bring people along on the journey with you. The one thing they won't have is a natural skill set in the areas that they're now involved in. So if you're a minister, you will need to have a fairly in-depth understanding of how your department works and how that department interacts with other parts of government and how the people of New South Wales interact with your department as well. And so it'd be advantageous for organisations who have naturally that skill set and understanding of their industry to partner with government in the first year or two on the initiatives that government would like to roll out. So um, to the last couple of elections, Chris Minns and Labor has taken a drug summit to the election to deal with a couple of issues in New South Wales. There was a special inquiry into the drug ICE um, that was handed down, I think, two or three years ago and the previous government sat on the findings for a long time and then when they came out with their response to those, most of the AOD health and mental health community were underwhelmed with the progress that has been made. So uh, the Labor policy is to have a drug summit. I think they're hopeful that a document will come out at the end that they can point to and say, this is what the experts say we must do. So we're going to go and do that. It provides them with some political coverage as well because they don't have to be the ones that bring the policy ideas to the table and let the experts do that. Um, and organisations should be buoyed by New South Wales being a little bit slow to the table when it comes to drug law reform. We've seen um, big changes in the ACT. We've seen some changes in South Australia and Victoria as well. And very recently, Queensland has introduced a piece of legislation to um, decriminalise personal quantities of formerly illicit substances as well. So just on that one piece of um, policy, this is a great opportunity for um, those working in the AOD mental health and health space and also social service space as well to come to the table literally at the drug summit and help guide that policy. And what they have is the opportunity to work hand in glove with government to design this policy and roll it out. And again, what they'll be able to do is position themselves as a trusted advisor to government. So the first thing that they've done is they've engaged with a minister or several ministers and their key staff and the department on a big transformative piece of policy construction in the drug summit. Then after that, the government will be more easily uh, able to engage with these organisations and the organisations themselves will be able to help shape policy moving forward. So I think the first step is to engage on election commitments. How can my organisation support the government to roll these out? And then as we've seen in New South Wales, this government might be in for you know, up to 12 or 16 years then we can start to shape the long-term policy once we've positioned ourselves as that trusted advisor. Well, I think that brings us to the end of a quite comprehensive wrap of uh, what the New South Wales election means for us, but also 
all Australians. Thank you very much, Jeremy and Tina, for your time today, and thank you all for watching. Uh, if you have any topics or themes you'd like us to explore on Marks and Alexander Explains, uh, let us know in the comment section below, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast via your podcast platform of choice or via our YouTube channel. Uh, thank you very much for your time today.